This is potentially Mike's last time speaking to us as part of, um, well, being a member here. Um, though you'll continue to be around, <coughs> we so, trust, yep, I hope so. um, which we'll welcome. Um, but let's pray for Mike this morning. Father God, we thank you that you created all things and it's by your will that we this morning have our being. And so we pray that you would anoint Mike's words, that they would come from your heart and speak into ours, that lives may be challenged, that your love may be revealed, that your wisdom may be imparted this morning. For we ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Um, we had some discussion this week about uh, whether, when doing the reading, we should read out the whole of chapter one or just select particular bits of it because it's quite lengthy. Um, but I'm glad we ended up reading the whole thing because, thank you, Linda, you read that beautifully. Um, and it's just such a wonderful, wonderful um, account of God's creative act. Hold on a sec. Slightly I've always loved the opening chapters of Genesis. There's this deep sense of mystery, lyrical poetry about it. It's a portrait of a majestic God with a deep, deep love for the creation that's unfolding as the words spill forth from the divine mouth. And Genesis forms the foundation, really, of how we understand ourselves, how we understand our relationship to God, how we understand our relationship to each other, and importantly, how we understand our relationship to the rest of the created order. And I must confess that when Matthew asked me to speak about Genesis 1, I jumped at the opportunity to share how it might inform some of our environmental politics. So I'm going to offer three thoughts this morning. Firstly, I think it's worth reflecting on actually why our relationship to the environment matters in any way. Because surely it's our relationship with God that matters, right? Secondly, I'm hoping we can mine some of the treasures of Genesis 1 and some of chapter 2 and help us to understand what the Bible actually says about the nature and the role of human beings. And finally, I'm going to put forward a couple of ideas about how the first two issues might play out in practice and what we as individuals and as a community might do to put our relationship with the environment on a better footing. So, why is the environment an important issue for us? What does it matter how the environment is treated? And I'd like to suggest that it matters an awful lot, and for a range of reasons. To open Psalm 24, David declares that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. And so I think that the central reason for caring about the environment is that our attitude towards it reflects our attitude to God. Our attitude to the created world around us reflects our attitude to the creator. The natural world is a lovingly crafted gift for human beings, and when we mistreat it, we demonstrate contempt for its creator. To treat our environment well is to bestow on God the rightful place God deserves and demands. A second reason that our environment is relevant is the justice issue. The theme of God's desire for justice for the poor and the oppressed and the downtrodden rings out across the scriptures. 
Let's think, who is it who suffers as sea levels slowly rise? Is it wealthy people in seaside second homes? No. People who can afford flood defences or homes on higher land aren't the ones going to suffer. Who bears the burden when drought causes crops to fail? Is it the wealthy and well-fed? No, it's not. Of course not. Those who can afford to import food or invest in irrigation systems, they won't be the ones going hungry. I I could go on, but I, I trust the point is clear. When our environment is damaged, it's our poorest brothers and sisters who bear the brunt of any problems. Our poorest brothers and sisters bear the cost. Finally, I'd like to suggest that the environment is important because it's an opportunity for our personal transformation. It's easy to look at environmental issues and say, I can't do anything about that as an individual. The problems are just too big. And that's an understandable position. It really is. I understand that. But Jesus asks us to follow him in the way of the cross. Jesus asks us to put our own comfort and wealth aside and follow him. And some small, simple acts of sacrifice and extra effort, they may just be a drop in the ocean, but as Mother Teresa taught us, the ocean is made of many drops. Right then, friends, let's turn back to Genesis and have a look at what we can glean about the nature of human beings from the text. You might want to have your Bibles handy, but I'll have some references up on the screen. Genesis 1 suggests to me, firstly, that we human beings are in some sense the pinnacle of the creation God has made. We are the pinnacle of God's creation. You may notice, as Linda read the story, that the narrator regularly punctuates what he says with the observation that God saw that it was good. That comes up five or six times throughout Genesis chapter 1. And this continues right to verse 26, in which God moves to create us, create human beings. But what's God's observation at the end of this, in verse 31? God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Not just good, but very good. And I've seen that phrase translated elsewhere as completely perfect, or just right. Let's be clear, it's not that human beings in themselves are very good, But all of creation is very good. And that human beings are in some way the thing that moves creation from just being good to being very good. We are, as it were, the icing on the created cake. We're incredibly special in that respect. There's also an important sense in which human beings, we, are fundamentally different from the rest of the natural world. In Genesis 1, 26 and 7, it's described as being made in the image of God. In chapter 2, verse 7, the man is described as being given the breath of life by God in a way that nothing else that's created was. This is usually understood to mean that human beings, unlike animals or plants, have an element of the divine spark within them. All of us, irrespective of age, gender, race, ability religion even, have something of God's divine nature within our very being. All of us have something of God's divine nature within our very being. You might call it a a soul, 
Isn't that marvellous? God gave us a fragile creation, part of his very self. And that's an outpouring of God's divine love that reaches its culmination on the cross and starts right here at the beginning of Genesis. Finally, God gives us authority and responsibility. In chapter 1, God makes clear that human beings have been created to rule over the fish of the seas and the animals and everything else. There's a clear sense that God is delegating the creator's authority to part of his creation for a particular purpose. There's also responsibility given to the humans in chapter 2. God asks him to name the animals. It's a slightly odd task to be given. Um, But it shows to us that God, again, delegates responsibility to us. Naming things is is a huge responsibility, as I'm sure anyone who's had children will appreciate. But it's a responsibility that handed over, handed over to humans. And I actually noticed, as, as Linda was reading, that God starts with the naming at the beginning of chapter 1. He names the day and the night and the land and the earth. And then he hands over that responsibility to human beings. But how does any of this actually matter for us today in terms of how we can or should relate to the environment? Christian teaching across the centuries has identified two principles that help us out here. And two principles that we need to try and hold in tension as as followers of Jesus. On the one hand, is the principle of dominion. This is the idea that human beings have been given authority from on high over the created world. This comes out of those final verses of Genesis 1 again, with God's instruction to rule over his creation. And giving the plants and the trees to Adam and Eve. There's an indication here that human beings are granted power over creation by God in order to use creation to enable human flourishing. It's there for our benefit. God has given us this wonderful gift of creation with the intention that all of us live happy, fulfilling and healthy lives. However, on the other hand is the principle of stewardship. While we do have authority, we also have responsibility. The principle of stewardship starts by emphasising, again, that the world does not belong to us. We don't own the world. God, the creator, is the rightful owner of all that we see around us. Remember the beginning of Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So while we're given power to use creation for our own flourishing, we also need to remember that we are ultimately looking after the world on God's behalf. You might perhaps refer to Jesus' parable of the talents in in Matthew 25 as an indication that God expects some kind of return on the investment he places in us. The world isn't simply ours just to use for our own benefit. There's a balance to be got between these two principles. And that's often more easily said than done. So let's think about an example of how we might put this into practice. Now, I'm going to talk about an issue that's played on my mind for a while, it might not weigh heavily on yours, but um, I hope it will serve as an example of how to hold these two principles in tension, and I'll give you an opportunity to think about uh, things that you might want to consider in your own lives as well in a minute. Um, I'm going to hold my hands up to an addiction. I am addicted to meat. 
I'm addicted to meat, whether it's the tender delights of a bacon roll from 19 or a delicious steak. I can't, I can't stop eating meat. I, I don't know if any of you are, are the same, but I have this... It's a deeply ingrained addiction that's been with me for as long as I can remember. Whenever it comes to making dinner, the first question is, what meat are we going to choose? And then everything else gets built around it. First it's, okay, well, we'll have chicken, and then we'll think, well, we're going to have potatoes or rice. Meat always comes first. The problem is that eating meat is an environmental disaster waiting to happen if we all do it on the scale that we are currently eating meat. Producing meat requires significant quantities of feed, which then in turn uses large quantities of land that could be used for feeding others. Remember what I said about the, the justice issue earlier on. We end up chopping down vast quantities of rainforest to provide feed for cows that then go into our food. On average, apparently, a kilo of beef on your plate requires seven kilos of feed in order to get the cow to the stage where it can be eaten. All of this uses water, vast quantities of it. I think it was something like 16 million litres of water for the average uh, tonne of beef. That's, That's a lot of water. Animals, particularly cows... I I like beef. Um, They also release release a lot of highly polluting gas, methane. There's an issue of animal welfare at stake. How do we ensure that the animals that we eat are treated well in life and in death? The dominion principle here, from the end of Genesis chapter 1, suggests that God has given us animals to enjoy for our benefit. The world is here for human flourishing, And I can't imagine many better ways of flourishing than enjoying a roast chicken, for example. There's nothing wrong, in principle, with eating meat. On the other hand, though, the stewardship principle, that the world ultimately belongs to God and not to us, says that we need to look after the world. And we need to be aware that the choices we make may negatively affect the environment around us. And in terms of balancing those two principles, my inclination is that the environment and also my own waistline need me to eat less meat. I'm I'm not going to turn vegetarian. That's a step too far for now. But however, my my wife and I are trying to get into the habit of organising our meals so that we have fish at least once or twice a week. And maybe, maybe we'll get a proper vegetarian meal once a week at some point. If anyone can recommend a good vegetarian cookbook, then I'd be very grateful to you. And and that seems to me to get a reasonable balance between stewardship and dominion, between our human flourishing, which God wants and God hopes for, and taking care of the world around us. What about you? How might you find a healthy balance between stewardship and dominion? Let's just take a minute to reflect on, on some environmental issues. There are some on the screen. For example, should you be worried that you use the car too much? And perhaps you ought to use public transport or walk more. And perhaps we, we end up emphasising the convenience of, of using a car at the cost of the environment, perhaps. Is it worth paying a little more to go to an electricity provider that 
generates all their electricity renewably? Or could you perhaps use, use that money elsewhere in a better way? Just take a minute and, and ask God to perhaps put something on your heart and challenge you if you need to be challenged. be delighted to hear after the service people having a cup of coffee and discussing how they can balance stewardship and dominion in their own lives but before that my my final reflection is this when it's hard to find a balance between stewardship and dominion when it's hard to decide where do I draw the line my feeling is that we ought on balance to emphasize stewardship over dominion If we return to the original three issues that I identified about the environment, those of putting God in his proper place, recognising the justice issue that occurs when we mistreat the environment, and recognising the opportunity for personal transformation, all three of those, I think, are enhanced when we tend to put stewardship ahead of dominion. That's my challenge to you in the coming months, in your daily life, in your politics, How can you put your responsibility of stewardship ahead of your own personal flourishing on balance? Because I have a sense that perhaps in Christian history, we've tended to perhaps use the principle of dominion as an opportunity for selfishness. We've been tempted to say, God has given us this, this world for us to enjoy at the cost of others and the world itself.